Hey guys, welcome to episode 10 of Super High Sci-Fi. We made it all the way to 10 episodes, and as today is Easter Sunday, we thought we might have a, a wonderful Easter discussion, nothing to do with Easter itself, but something to do with uh, intense mediocrity going all the way up to greatness. So the main event today, to give you a little preview, is Grant and I uh, are going to talk about the Star Trek movies, all of them, including J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies, uh, what we consider to be kind of the midpoint, the neutral, all the way up to the good, and then next week you're going to hear us talk about the movies that we really hate in the Star Trek lineup and we consider to be the worst. Which will inevitably be more fun. Right. So if you want to turn the podcast off right here and come back next Sunday, I can't blame you, but if you stick around today, I can promise you the following. We're going to talk about some news, we're going to talk about some Star Trek, and Sam is going to be frozen in carbonite. So without further ado, what's been going on, Grant? Well, we get some interesting news here. Uh, one, everybody's favorite writer who can't seem to finish his own series, uh, George R. R. Martin, Game of Thrones. He is actually working on a new sci-fi TV series for HBO called Captain Cosmos. So sounds a little out there, but apparently it has to do with the dawn of the television age, and actually the story seems to be centered on a television writer who's creating a sci-fi television series uh, that tells stories, quote-unquote, that no one else will dare to tell. So kind of sounds like a, a Rod Serling-inspired character. Um, this is a kind of a different direction for George R. R. Martin recently, although it's kind of familiar territory for him in terms of his whole career, because if you don't know, this guy has written prolifically for a lot of TV shows and especially anthology shows like uh, the Outer Limits series in the 90s. Uh, he also wrote for the Twilight Zone revival in the 80s. And so he's been around the block, and I think this is pretty exciting because HBO usually doesn't do science fiction. So I'm looking forward to this. We'll see what comes of it. Yeah, it's really exciting to hear that HBO is going to try their hand at some sci-fi. And I think what you did there was really good to let everybody know that although George R.R. R. Martin in the vein of, I guess, J.R.R. Tolkien, is known for his uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, is the the universe Game of Thrones, really primarily known for that stuff. He did have an expansive career, you know, outside of writing those books, so it's good to see him flexing his sci-fi muscles again. Yeah. And then we've also got a, a news piece on here, so a little more grounded in reality, is there's a new report out that says that a mission to Mars could actually reach orbit of the planet Mars by 2033, and we may be able to actually land a human crew on Mars by 2039. My initial response is, that's really cool. My second response is, it's still not fast enough for me. I I want it to happen sooner. I think we can do it sooner. I think we can do it right now. It's just that there's, a, I think, a lack of uh, interest and will to do it. Yeah, I actually, I, I want to see the reaction to this report and the news headlines that accompany it. I want to see the reaction of people like Elon Musk and a lot of the other visionaries out there these days who are really, really pushing very hard on policymakers about the importance of going to Mars and exploring our solar system. I don't think this is fast enough for Elon Musk, certainly. No. So, I, I mean, 
if we're relying on NASA alone, yeah, uh, maybe 2039 seems like a realistic time path. I think we're going to get there sooner because we have a lot more energy in uh, not just NASA, but the private sector companies that are really interested in doing this, like SpaceX. Um, what what are some others out there that are that are doing this? I think uh, Lockheed Martin is is creating like a um, something kind of like a glider, a space glider type thing that will achieve like low Earth orbit. Yeah, they're all of the um, everybody's favorite government contractors: Raytheon, Lockheed, Boeing. I'm sure Airbus at some point. They all have their little you know orbiter flight space projects, things like a. a um, not so much a Concorde, but more like a low Earth orbit shuttle that'll make a journey really quick. That sort of civilian aerospace application is out there. But I think you're right that the rich Richard Branson, Elon Musk people of the world are going to say, you know what, NASA, that's a great idea, but fuck waiting till 2039. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I forgot about Virgin Galactic, right? Which is more focused on space tourism, right. but still the technology they learn by developing that will help us get to Mars eventually, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, NASA invented the microwave for space, you know, just to orbit the Earth a couple times and check out what's going on out there, and everybody's got one of those now. I so. thought that guy in Ancient Aliens told us that it was aliens. Or was it the guy with the crazy hair? Yeah. Giorgio? Yeah. Giorgio, yeah, that's a great picture of Giorgio sitting with two hot ladies at a Halloween party, grabbing their asses <laughs> on a couch. <laughs> It's got the image macro, you know. Is such a thing possible? Yes. Yes, it is. Because aliens. Because aliens, yeah, <laughs> probably. That's exciting news about um, NASA putting that out there because I, I think that we might have gone from the era where NASA is going to lead the way toward the era where maybe people who are in, you know, private equity venture capital are going to start to dip their toes in the pond. Yeah, I actually see NASA's role now evolving towards more of a coordinator. I think that they ultimately still have control over the space program and what who gets what contract and what they're going to work with and what the what the end goal is. So, yeah. I, but I think that all these private sector companies they need somebody to bring them together. I think that's NASA's role in the future if we're talking about establishing a colony on the moon or going to Mars. Yeah, I think NASA is certainly going to be the the person with the whiteboard. Maybe right. mapping things out. Right. And they're not done creating space vehicles, too, because no. they also uh, launched, I think, the test flight in December last year of their new, I can't remember the name of it. The rocket? O- Orion. It's the o- Orion right. rocket, yep. Right. The Orion rocket that will hopefully be able to take uh, a manned mission to Mars to the orbit of the planet within six months. Is that the... Well, I think the Orion rocket is the new NASA vehicle to get into space because the space shuttle's gone. Okay. So I think the Orion rocket is kind of going, it's a more cost-effective and intelligent Apollo design. The six-month timeline for Mars is um, using an ion engine, actually. Oh, okay. Which exists. If you guys can look it up, there's a great YouTube video. The project, I think, is called Vasmir, V-A-S-M-I-R. You can watch, uh, I think it's in the JPL laboratory. They have one of these. They crank it up and let it go. It's an ion engine like you would find in a TIE fighter, like in Star Wars. It actually exists. It moves ionized gas out the back of it to move it along. And apparently it'll go so fast that you can get to Mars in six months versus like the year and a half it would take doing like the gravity slingshot maneuver. That's really cool. Yeah, it's awesome. That's big news. Hopefully somebody's going to have 
I guess, the wherewithal to test that out and make sure it's feasible. But I think that's the best chance to get it. Because I can tell you right now, I'll take a six-month trip to Mars, but I'm not taking a year-and-a-half trip. It's total horseshit. Take a three-year round trip? No, thank you. I'll stay here. All right, it's cool. So enough about that. Let's get to the really important topic. Oh, no, one more thing. One more thing. I want everybody else to go and look up a video from, I don't know if you've seen this, but SpaceX built a rocket that'll land itself. Yeah, didn't they try and fail a couple times? Yeah, well, you know, okay. Apollo 1 burned up on the launch pad and killed people, so I think we've maybe made some... I know, I'm just asking if... Yeah, they had a couple attempted twice to do that, but they they got it right. Yes, there's a video of it landing itself and not tipping over or anything like that. They finally got it sorted out, which is good news because the way they used to do this, one of the reasons they launched off of Cape Canaveral so they could just dump the fuel or the um, the booster rockets in the ocean and have Navy ships pick them up, so it wouldn't land in anybody's house. Yeah, yeah, the best we could do at the time, but pretty inefficient by today's standards. Yeah, so somebody came up with a self-landing rocket finally. So that's, uh, I guess, another... Um, shit, what's that guy's name? The guy Captain Proton's bait, Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers yeah. in the 20th century? Buck Rogers, yeah. It's another Buck Rogers thing that's come to pass, the rocket that lands by itself. All right, goddammit. Now it's time for the the real show. Now it's time for the real show to begin. Where we talk about the things that really matter... Things that Star are really Trek. real. Yeah, Star Trek is real, guys. These rockets and going to Mars, that's bullshit. Star Trek's real. So we're starting... Where, where are we starting? We are starting in the gravity... We're starting in, the, I guess, the Maw installation here. You know, we're going to the gravity neutral area. The absolute middle. There are 12 Star Trek films, if we're counting the original cast, the Next Generation films, and J.J.'s two released films. 13 if we're going to count Star Trek three. But since we haven't seen that yet... We can only judge the 12 that are out there for everybody to look at. So we're going to go and say, which is the middle, which is like the neutral, not good, not bad. And then we're going to talk about all the way up to the best today. Okay. I know. I'm ready. I'm excited. So what do you say? What is the what is dead neutral on for Star Trek movies? I think that uh, the neutral Star Trek movie for me is Star Trek Generations. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's not good, but it's not horrible. It's not Star Trek V, you know? it's There's a big gap between Star Trek V and Generations for me. Yeah. Um, Generations, I can't, I can't agree with this. Okay. Generations to me, it just has too many, too many offenses in it to Star Trek fans worldwide, and I, I cannot abide those, especially the the ultimate sin of killing Captain Kirk as a really cheesy way to pass the torch, so to speak, yeah. onto the next generation crew, which is absolutely stupid because they passed the torch in the last film, Star Trek VI Undiscovered Country, and they did it beautifully, and then they took generations and ruined that. Because that should have been the last time we saw the original cast ever. Okay, and then they made Scotty and Chekhov and Shatner come back. Not saying they made them come back. Of course, they came back for paychecks, but yeah, they made the characters come back, which was stupid. And 
to their to his credit, you know, Leonard Nimoy uh, refused to come back onto Star Trek Generations because Spock's character was originally going to be on the bridge of the Enterprise B during the opening sequence. And he wisely refused because he understood that, yeah, we had the final act in the last movie, and we had the sign-off. They actually signed their goddamn names onto the screen to sign off. And I just, I can't get over that with Generations. I think Generations ruined all of that goodwill. Especially since it's such a poorly constructed story. I'm looking at this more pragmatically, though, because I'm I'm realizing that we have to fit in. The bad spectrum has to include the J.J. Abrams movie. But but see, that's that's the interesting thing to me is that my dead neutral movie is actually J.J.'s first Star Trek film, Star Trek 2009. Yes, because we've talked about this before. I don't consider it Star Trek. I don't think anybody should. I think it's. I personally believe it's a bad movie. And the story is shit. But that doesn't mean that I'm totally objective, right? There's people out there who probably think that it is a good story, it is a fun movie, blah, 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 whatever. But to me, why it's dead neutral is because on the one aspect, we have Star Trek characters like Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, uh, you know, Sarek, everybody that you're used to seeing from the original series is there. The universe is very Star Trek. We have the ships, we have the Federation, the whole, the world building has been done, it's all there. The problem is the story, and the story to me is what cancels the movie out, in my mind, and just makes it like that kind of black hole in the center of the Star Trek universe, because the story is completely not Star Trek. It's basically, as we talked about before, a really badly driven action movie with Star Trek pasted on top of it. So to me, those two things, the story and then the Star Trek characters in the universe and all that, they cancel each other out, and what you end up with, in my opinion, is like a a net-nothing movie. So that's the the neutral, and since we're going to talk about you know the march toward the best today, what would you put after that then? Um. Well, wait. You're not you're not going to disagree with me about Star Trek 2009. I thought you said Generations was neutral. Well, I think Star Trek 2009 is a terrible movie, so I can't really say it's neutral. I don't really care about the world building. I care about the fact that. It's just so mind-bogglingly retarded as a film concept that Captain Kirk's dad gets shot at by an angry Romulan space miner, and that makes Kirk into a bad kid who wants to drive a car off a cliff, who then grows up to get into a bar fight, and then a captain's like, you should join Starfleet because you fight really well in a bar. Yeah. Well, he does say that his aptitude tests are off the chart. Oh, yeah. He's the misunderstood genius who's the slacker and the troublemaker kid. I mean, you know, it could have worked, but I just think the writing's so fucking lazy that I had to put it on the bad side of things. It's just all... Uh, the whole movie is just a convenient series of events that ends with Kirk's ass in the captain's chair. I mean, it would have worked for me if they could have just put Kirk in the captain's chair to begin with. That would have been fine. That would have been an okay movie. Everybody knows the original Star Trek crew. Mm-hmm. So they very well could have just started that film... The same way they started the Into Darkness, where the, the crew's are already there. We're going to have a Star Trek adventure. 
We don't need to waste half the film, you know, flying on the Shuttle Academy trip there. Oh, my name's Bones. My wife took everything but my bones. I like to drink whiskey now. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't work for me. Doesn't do much for me. I'd rather watch Generations because as terrible as killing Captain Kirk that way is, I don't think it's a problem to kill Captain Kirk. It's just the way that it was done bothers me. Well, yeah, and to be fair to Generations, the original way that they were going to kill Kirk was absolutely... Oh, the original way they filmed it. Well, yeah, 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 you're right. The original way they filmed it and did it with test audiences was that Kirk was just going to get shot with, like, a you know disruptor blast. Yeah, shot in the back. Soren was just going (laughs) to shoot him, and and he's like, boop, dead. Well, and obviously test audiences thought that that was absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do to this iconic character, and it sucked. So they went and refilmed the ending and had Kirk get crushed by a fucking bridge. I mean, like, that's better. <laughs> but it, I think the important thing was that in the refilmed ending, Kirk is integral to saving the day versus in the original shoot. From what I'm given to understand, it was just like Kirk and Picard are trying to stop Malcolm McDowell there, and then when he has his back turned, he just gets shot and dies. Yeah, and, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of Picard recruiting Kirk to help him. Well, I mean, if I'm honest about the story there, there's really no point to recruiting Kirk. Because Picard kind of blows his big chance. This is what makes the movie neutral to me, because I enjoy it from a Star Trek perspective. But the story kind of like, Guinan says, oh, you can leave the Nexus and go anywhere you want, any place in time. Like, all right, how about I go back to, you know, before Sauron even gets on the ship and don't even pick him up? Or how about I kick him in the nuts and ten forward when we're having the party because I know what's going to happen? Or how about I go back and give his mom an abortion? Like, there's numerous places you could do that instead of just going, I'm going to go to the exact last second and I need just somebody else to come punch Sarn in the face. Fuck, like, you know, reach out in time, grab Sugar Ray Leonard or something. You don't need Kirk. <laughs> Get fucking yeah. Mike Tyson to go with you. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. Uh, that that actually, if the logic falls apart yeah. when you think about what they could have done. <laughs> yeah. So that's what makes the movie neutral for me is that it's... Uh, the story's interesting, but the, the logic internal to it is kind of like, okay, well, you gave your guy a get-out-of-jail-free card, and Picard now suddenly contracts a Down syndrome. And was like, yo, I'm going to go back to the exact last second I can stop this from happening. Like, the fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I didn't hear what you just said because I was too busy thinking about Mike Tyson coming to help Captain Picard beat up Soren, just thinking, like... Dr. Thorne, everybody comes into the ring with a plan, and, and then they get hit. That would have been a better ending, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Mike Tyson just beat the shit out of Dr. Soren and throw him into his rocket. <laughs> that's, what I'm, that's my point, though, is like you could, that's why the movie's so neutral, is because you could just fit anybody in there. It is very similar to Star Trek 09 in, my, in that way to me, because it's like they took kind of a weird action movie premise. you got to stop the bad guy from launching the rocket. Like, you have to stop... Uh, General Hummel from launching the VX rocket over the football with the baseball game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. But that's the same fucking thing. Basically, that's happening here. So it's like the plot of The Rock, and right. but in space. They just pasted an action movie over Star Trek, or Star Trek over an action movie. The same thing as 2009. So, you know, I, I don't think they're that dissimilar on the spectrum. It's just that 2009 is a little worse of a film for me because it does take such a huge dump on Star Trek. It's just... Why are you spending all this time with all these little winks and nods? Like, just put him in the fucking chair. 
Do it in the first 20 minutes. If you have to do, like, the Academy shit, get that out of the way, and then put him in the chair. Oh, God, yeah, that's that, that's something that just always pisses me off about that movie is he goes from being a cadet who hasn't even graduated yet to the captain of the Federation flagship in one movie. Yes. That, that ah, I don't know. I think they should have just kept the movie focused on, like, He's not going to be the captain. Maybe the Enterprise is involved in it, and he's on the bridge or whatever, but he doesn't become the captain in the end. Like, it didn't feel like he earned it. Yeah, I mean, the way the story is, he should have ended up being, like, Lieutenant Kirk, maybe. Yeah. He didn't earn the captaincy, and that... So it makes the movie, it just pisses me off watching it, because it's like, okay, why are we at the Academy? Well, we're at the Academy to have the green girls in her underwear, right? Yeah. Right, we're at the Academy for that. We're at the Academy to say Admiral Archer's Beagle, right? Right. We wink, can mention wink, that nod, nod. so we can talk yeah, talk about more Star Trek stuff that was on TV. And we're at the Academy to introduce Kirk and Spock's antagonism at the hearing with Tyler Perry. Yep. I mean that that's it. Like Kirk cheats in the test, which admittedly is a funny scene. I like that scene. I think Chris Pine's very affable and him eating that apple while Spock is getting pissed that he's destroying all the ships. And Kirk being a douche back to Uhura. That's funny. I like that. But there's no point to having it in the movie. Yeah. I actually don't like how they made Kirk a douchebag. I don't think a lot of people like that, honestly. Even people who like the movie overall, I've, mm-hmm. they've complained to me about that aspect of it. Just, he's not a douchebag. If, if you've watched even the original series when he's at his youngest... Yeah. Right? He's never a douchebag. He's confident. He knows what he's doing. Like, you could never envision a time where he was an asshole. Right? right. I mean, you just, maybe a little cocky, but not like the way they wrote the character for Star Trek 2009, who, I don't know, it, he has, seems like he has Anakin Skywalker syndrome, like the other, the opposite end of that, whereas Anakin's like a little petulant, little whiny kid. Kirk is like, the popular kid in high school, you know, who gets everything he wants and acts like an asshole the whole time. Yeah, I know. I'm 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 revealing too much about myself. <laughs> oh no, I just, uh, again for those of you who are just joining us, Grant and I are brothers, so I know exactly who he's talking about from the high school we went to. Right, and yeah. you know, Kirk is not like that. No, and and Spock is not an emo guy. Uh, well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why the movie is. Uh, not neutral for me why well, it's bad because Spock is an angry little kid who's just so fucking mad about everything and then Kirk is like a jock douche it's fun to watch but then you're the back of your head's like well that's that's really fun and it would be great if this were an action movie where he was a cop or something but he's Kirk he's supposed to figure out how to cheat on the Kobayashi Maru test as like a demonstration of his intellect yeah and his yeah is not that Kirk can't accept there's a no-win scenario. He's going to find a way to do it. Not that he's going to cheat and like stick his tongue out at Spock saying, all right, well, fuck you. All right, you know what? Uh, this is a, I didn't think this was going to happen, but you've convinced me that Star Trek 2009 deserves to switch places with Generations. Generations is the dead neutral movie. And I say that now because I'm thinking about what you're saying, and actually, even if you nail it down to the smallest details... Yep. The pathetic thing, just on one note, is uh, the soundtrack for Generations is pathetic compared to Star Trek standards, but it's better and it works better for the movie than the music in Star Trek 2009. 
I yeah, can't remember right. anything from Star Trek 2009 from music. Like, well, I mean, oh, no, just I'm that. Sorry, I can. I can remember the running through the hallway music. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Okay, so you've you've convinced me then. I'll switch generations with Star Trek 2009. Well, there you go. See, that's what okay. I'm saying. That's, that's the neutral film. It's Star yeah. Trek 2009 is entertaining, and your eyes won't get bored, but as a Star Trek film, as a film overall, just not as you, good as Generations. You know, Star Trek 2009 was entertaining to see in the theater yeah. for one viewing yep. because of the novelty of it, because we hadn't had a Star Trek movie for seven years. On the second viewing, it falls apart completely. Yeah. Yeah. So, now that we've established that Generations is the hard neutral, and I guess we can talk more about why we hate Star Trek 2009 in uh, next week's podcast, which I know is what everybody is just dying to hear. What is What comes next in the order of, of good or better for you? Uh, I'm going to put Star Trek 3, Search for Spock. Okay. I would actually agree with that. Why do you agree with me? Uh, the search for Spock, I think, is certainly better than Generations, but it just feels kind of like a, a slightly filler story to me. Yeah, the story, that's the thing about this movie, the story is really disjointed. Yeah. And it there's no real beginning, middle, and end. There's just a big middle, and then a very, very abbreviated ending. And it's almost like the second part of Wrath of Khan is like a two-part episode, almost. Except the episodes are two hours long. Yeah. I just didn't... Whenever I think of Star Trek Three, I think of... They blow up the Enterprise, which is interesting, and I like that. And Klingon Bastards killed my son. That's good. David dying, that's great, because David sucks. <laughs> yeah, he really does. But then after that, it's like... This movie could have been summed up with, okay, we found Spock, he's back alive from the Genesis planet. Okay, the planet's blowing up now. Great, okay, great. We got Spock back, the planet blew up. All the rest of the shit just seemed so unnecessary. Yeah, I... I like the fact that they took a lot of risks with this movie. Blowing up the ship is a big risk. And I think it, it pays off in the movie, mm-hmm. for sure. And they did really cool things, like introduce the Klingon Bird of Prey as a ship, which is probably next to the Enterprise, I'd say one of three or four most iconic ships in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's very recognizable just because it's appeared in so many episodes over so many of the Star Trek series and movies. Sure, yeah. And it's a really cool ship as well. And the Klingons, I think this is the actual first movie where they're really villains because we only see them in Star Trek The Motion Picture for about five minutes of the opening sequence and all they do is die. Yeah, the Klingons really haven't had much to do yeah, in any and Star in- Trek film. I like in this movie that they actually gave, like, a, a, there's a really good villain. You know, Cruz was a good villain, and Christopher Lloyd played him really well. Gave him kind of a, a manic, uh, megalomaniacal edge, you know, trying to get the Genesis device and all that, or the secret of it, so he can wage war on the Federation. And just, you get a sense of Klingon culture and stuff, and, and on the ship, and how he enforces, uh, I guess, the law on his ship you know, killing people at their stations for messing up on orders and stuff like that. I mean, 
And that kind of stuff shows up again in like the next generation where they actually spent a lot of time building out the culture. I, I liked all that stuff. And I liked that they introduced like space dock, that whole concept. Cause that was really cool. Right. Oh, I forgot to mention space dock. Yeah. Another part of the movie that I think is the reason it's on the good side of the spectrum here is because of that asshole guy who is the captain of the Excelsior. Oh, Captain Styles. Yeah, with his swagger stick. Yeah. Yeah, walking What is he going to do with that? I know. <laughs> is he going to go down there and whip the engine so it goes faster? Like, that's such a stupid thing to have on a spaceship. Yeah, I but I think you're right, though. They probably gave him that prop just to make him seem like even more of an ass. So. Well, I mean, the guy is supposed to come off like a huge douche, which is why it's satisfying as a film watcher when then you see, like... You know, mm, Kirk, you never sit in the chair again. I'm going to catch you because I'm that guy. And then Scotty has fucked up his engines and his fancy transwarp drive conks out and makes the broken noise. And right. it's just like, yeah, you suck. And if you're going to watch one scene in the entire movie, I think it's it's that whole sequence of them stealing the ship, which is really cool. Yeah. And I don't think it gets better than that for Star Trek action. And it has a point to it. Yeah, it's got a point, and everybody has something to do, which is great. Yeah, and there's, and there's, I mean, there's a good adversary in that scene as well, um, Excelsior, the new ship, which is actually a really, really cool ship. I, I mean, I think they got the inspiration from, uh, they speculated what would the Enterprise look like if it had been designed by the Japanese, and they came up with that Excelsior design, which hmm. outside of this movie, it's also one of the most common ship designs that appears in Star Trek, so it's, it turned out to be really influential. Yeah, and it's a cool, cool design. I mean, I, I like it a lot. It's in many ways, it's it's better than the Enterprise design that's in the movies, but or the original six movies. Yeah, I think the Excelsior is a pretty cool ship. Although I didn't like its appearance again in uh, Return or Into Darkness, I didn't like that. How the advanced battle cruiser was kind of like Excelsior-ish. Oh, the uh, the vengeance. Yeah, yeah. That was. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get but to that. just as a preview, that that kind of irked me. But yeah, the Excelsior. I think it's interesting. It's what's that legend? Um, is it John Henry, the guy who raced the steam engine? Yeah. In driving in the spikes, it's like that. The Enterprise is, is the John Henry, and the Excelsior is the steam engine. Right, because it's supposed to have transwarp drive, yeah. and you know that, that's something that they. That's why that's a plot point that never explored again. Right, that's kind of like if you if you introduce the gun in Act One, it has to go off in Act Three, and they introduce this big gun like the Excelsior has transwarp drive, and then it, it might be okay with me if it had never gone off in this movie, so to speak. But it's like. It's the whole ship is supposed to be the test bed for transwarp drive, and then it's like they completely abandon the entire idea, like with the rest of the series. Like it just oh yep. didn't work. <laughs> they they put the transwarp drive on hold, even though I guess it would have worked because Scotty just ruined it on purpose. Right? How did they know? How right. would they know? And then I guess they faxed the technology to the Borg because transwarps how the Borg roll. They go through the transwarp conduit all the right. time, and then they forgot about it. Is it? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those. <laughs> Little things about the movie that does irk me a bit that like plot points that they just never resolved. And the same thing with, um, oh, God, what was it? I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't know, like what happens to Savick after this movie? She is on Vulcan in the beginning of Star Trek Four. 
Yeah, and then they just kind of like discard her character. Oh, I mean, you mean <laughs> what happens to her, like meta-wise? Yeah, um, because she was supposed to be in, like, the character was supposed to be in Star Trek Six. Yeah, and then for whatever reason, they decided not to put the character in there and replaced it with uh, another Vulcan, Valeris. And I just, I don't know. I I thought that it would have been good to continue that character's arc. But they just kind of discarded her after the third movie. She has like a cameo in Star Trek Four. Yeah, she's in the beginning. Kirk says thank you, goodbye, and then she and Spock say live long and prosper, and that she's gone forever. Yeah, and I agree with you too. I I do love Star Trek Three because we get rid of Kirk's son. Yeah, like, just, he's just not a compelling character. I'm sorry. No, he could have been compelling. I could have cared about his death, but instead, like I only want him to die when I'm watching the movie, so I can see William Shatner do his walk back and fall over thing. Yeah, yeah, that's. <laughs> That's another great scene. Yeah. William Shatner writes in all of his like autobiographies that that was like a moment of acting genius that appeared to him. I should fall over because I'm so shocked by my son dying. <laughs> it works. I mean, it works, but it's also funny because he's like, right. If you watch it enough times, it becomes funny. Like you know, it's coming. And <laughs> there's just some good ham moments in there. But that's, that's a, like David in Star Trek Two. I I cared about his character because his character had something useful to say and do. In this movie, he seems to just be there to explain to us what the Genesis planet is doing, and then his other action is to get stabbed. Right. (laughs) Which, if your character is just there to do exposition, that's like a a bad 80s B-movie deal, like the scientist guy or something, just there to tell you about the whatever that's happening. Right. If David's whole role is just to say, here's the Genesis Project. Remember this from last time? Yeah. And, yeah. You know, to a lesser extent, that's I think that's how they use Savick, too, mm-hmm. in this movie, which is a waste. Well, I think she's also there just for, like, the the minor Spock content. Like, when young Spock is going insane. Yeah, because he's aging so rapidly. And yeah. He can't handle aging, you know, 50-plus years in five minutes. So, you know, I guess she has a purpose beyond that, but you're right. She and David seem to be primarily there to say, hey, here's the plot from last time in case you didn't catch the second movie. Yeah, and other things I like about this movie, the Vulcan mysticism. So, Mm -hmm. in the original series, we got to see some glimpses of that, but this movie really fleshes it out and actually sets up uh, some concepts that they explore in later Star Trek series with mind melding and restoring uh, like a Vulcan soul to one's body and stuff like that. And that whole concept of their immortal soul. That was cool. The special effects in this movie are great. I think, well, of course people are going to look back and say, Oh, it looks so fake and stuff. Well, you got to remember is 1984 and in 1984 they had ILM do this and that was state of the art at the time. And I think it still holds up. Yeah, well, it's shot with models. I mean, yeah, it's a limitation in and of itself, but I think that that's probably the best you're going to get out of model work. Right, and if you actually go and watch them on the Blu-ray versions, they've done a lot of cleanup on the the models against like the screens or whatever that they were using. So it you can't really even tell on the Blu-ray. Yeah, I think you have to look at it from the perspective of that. Although these movies take place in space, they're a little, I guess, smaller in scope than the new J.J. movies. Yeah. It's not so much about, like, the big expansive field of the broken ships and the asteroids around Vulcan and, oh, my God, what happened. It's, right, it's about the characters. Right, it's about the characters. So the ships and the models and everything, that's really in service of the plot. Like, the Enterprise is blown up to kill the Klingons to get rid of them in Kirk's attempt to 
you know, pull a little ruse off and get down to the planet. It's nothing to do with we need to blow up the ship because we want to do that in special effects. Yeah. So okay, I'm I'm done with Star Trek Three. I, I I don't have anything more to say about it because it's it's a good movie. I will also like to say that Star Trek Three is where you can see Vulcans using uh, the power of levitation with their minds. Okay. To float along the when they're restoring Doctor <clears throat> Dr. McCoy's like copy of Spock's brain. Yeah. They're copying it with the USB thing. Okay. There, the, the Vulcans have some goofy headgear on, and they're floating the fucking um, stretchers in there. No one's touching it. I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's in there. It's a little weird. I never knew that Vulcans... Apparently, I guess mm-hmm. if you... Maybe it's just a repulsor lift. I hope so, but at the same time, I think it might be cool that there will be telekinetic Vulcans who have trained super hard in like the hyperbolic time chamber. No. No? Okay. So they're anti-graph lifts. That's the yeah. boring scientific yep. explanation. So I guess since you went, I'll go now. What's next for me is uh, First Contact. That's mine as well for this next one. Okay, great. So why why First Contact for you then? Just because it's an awesome kick-ass movie. It's the perfect blend of Star Trek and action movie. It's like a, like a first-person shooter-based movie with an actual good story, you know? And I think it's a great resolution to this really, really long arc that Picard has with the Borg and dealing with his PTSD from or PTSD from being assimilated. Sorry, post-traumatic syndrome, bitch. Yeah. Okay. That's right. He he has post-traumatic syndrome, bitch, and it's just a he kicks ass in this movie. <laughs> I like it. I like the whole concept of you know they're fighting deck to deck with like these unstoppable cyborgs yeah first contact has a lot of great stuff and i think some people may complain that oh like it's not picard doesn't act that way on the tv show right mr plinkett complains about uh mr plinkett i was thinking uh of my friend justin but okay mr plinkett as well Uh, i think that maybe if you're that's your primary complaint you might have missed a little bit because Picard is usually in control of his shit and doesn't freak out. But like when he, he and his brother finally have that climactic moment in the vineyard where Picard explains to him like, you know, yeah, I, the Borg like deleted my mind and, you know, fucked me up pretty badly. You can tell like that's, he's losing his shit. So although he's normally a very tolerant and even keeled person, I think that the chance to, hurt and kill the people who hurt him so much is just like the Picard character, TV character or not. Like he just can't resist the chance to inflict the pain on them. Yeah. And I I think anybody who would disagree with you on that would come back and say, Oh, well, you know, look at later seasons and where they deal with uh, Hugh, the Mm -hmm. Borg that they find. It's like Picard clearly has learned to deal with the Borg thing because he can, learn to relate to Hugh as a human being and not see him as just a Borg that he wants to use to kill the entire Borg race or something. And he lets Hugh go, and they end up helping Hugh against Lore Mm -hmm. in a two-parter later episode. And again, like, Picard's okay with the Borg there, and he seems to respect that they they have, like, individual needs and stuff like that, and he's not going to just exterminate them. But I would say to a person like that, okay, but in the movie... They're on his ship, and they're invading his ship. You don't think that's going to re-traumatize somebody or kind of like rip the the scab off the wound? 
And more importantly, they're there to stop first contact and make the Earth into a, a big Borg planet. So Right, so they're kind of like striking at not just Picard, but everything in Picard's world. Like everything that is Starfleet, his whole life. So I get why he would go kind of nuts and say, like, I'm going to kill you all now. Yeah, I, the Tommy Gunn scene makes sense when you realize that he's not only stopping them from stopping first contact, he's not only getting revenge on them, but he's cleaning them off his ship, like his new ship, his brand new ship that he just got. Right, like Jordy says they've been out there less than a year. Yeah, I'd be pissed too. Yeah, and also I love that scene because it's been photoshopped and there's so many great gifts on the internet. <laughs> yeah, I've just Captain Picard wasting a Borg with a Tommy gun is really just, it's great. I just love the part where he goes and tries to smash the smash it with the butt of the gun. She's like, I think you got him. Yeah, you didn't get him. You got to smash his head in. But, yeah. I mean, that scene's also funny because it has Nikki the Nose in there who's, um, what's his face from that 70s show? Oh, uh, Donna's dad. Bob. Yeah. Bob. And um, Neelix is the, the maitre d' yep. at the front. I, yeah, it's just, it's good. And I think that it's an interesting movie because it's, it gets you a glimpse at, because everybody talks about, okay, there's Khan, the original Khan explanation where he takes over the world in the 1990s, and then there's World War Three sometime in the 2060s, I think. Yeah. Or no, no, World War Three is like before that. 2063 is when the Vulcans make contact okay. with Earth. So World War Three is like 2030s then? Yeah, Somewhere something like that. It's just that the world is all fucked up and ruined, and then people are, like, Zephram Cochran's whole thing is he is living near a Montana missile base. There's, like, a little settlement that's popped up around there. Because otherwise, your explanation is, that, I guess, your exposure to how it happens is it goes from, you know, the world sucks, Khan's taking over, World War Three happens somewhere in there, and then the earliest we'd seen was, you know... Enterprise, but Enterprise wasn't made at this time, so the earliest we'd seen at that point was the original series when the Federation was already good to go. Yeah. So it was cool to see, I guess, the... the, I don't know how fucked up Earth was in between. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is I like how they developed the Borg in this movie that instead of being a faceless gestalt entity they gave the the borg like kind of a a focal point in the borg queen and a lot of people criticize this because they say oh you know they just did it because you know it's a movie and they needed like a you know a, a central villain or something and it had to like service the plot well yeah i mean that's that's part of what makes the movie work but i also think that it's it's compelling to expand the mythology like that mm-hmm. to actually give you know, this idea that, you know, the Borg don't just act as one collective consciousness. Maybe they also need, like, specialized, um, you know, control units like the Queen to kind of, as she says, you know, bring the order to the chaos and stuff to try to smooth the, the conversation between all those minds. So I thought that was really cool. And the fact that she has some connection with Picard and then and then Data. I think this is a good Picard and Data movie. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, and also, I think just in terms of movie making, I think this film is a really good tutorial for people making movies nowadays in how to judiciously use a combination of practical and CGI effects. Because yes. in this movie, the the Enterprise is completely CGI, 
except for some shots they have, like where they're on the um, the deflector dish. Well, that's, so that's yeah. a set, obviously. obviously a set, yeah. But all the big shots of the Enterprise you see, all of that, all the ships and stuff, it's all CGI. Mo- well, most of it is CGI, but it really works because they're doing it judiciously. They're not using CGI for everything, but then everything you see with the Borg and what they're doing, the makeup, all that, the effects with that, that's all practical. And I really feel like today a lot of that wouldn't be done. That they no. would just kind of do a minimalist Borg makeup and then use CGI and post to put the rest of the makeup, so to speak, on the Borg through the computer. Yeah, I think the Borg costume today would be the the bodysuit with some different colored, like little focal white point bumps on it. Right. With some green mat around them. Yeah, I agree with that. So I, I think this is a good movie so you can see the balance because in sci fi. You're all a lot of times. You, if you watch older movies, you can tell they're very limited with what they could do because they couldn't do really great like space battles or stuff like that, or, or um, you know, big uh, planetscapes and things because they're limited to working with a set and working with models. CGI kind of turned that around, and that yeah, you can have all that stuff, but now you know people have taken it way too far and then what happens is you end up getting movies where there's great sequences but they get ruined by terrible CGI like in the matrix reloaded there's some great sequences in that movie and every single one of them gets ruined by crappy CGI yeah i, I think that this is like 1996 i think is this movie first right. contact that's the the era right right around titanic and stuff when CGI was it wasn't advanced enough to the point where you could quote unquote make your whole movie with it, but it wasn't horrible enough that you, you know, your choice was either Babylon five or do everything with models. Like there was a, the happy medium where you could enhance your shots and do certain things that were too costly or too complex with models with CGI, but it wasn't, it, the, it wasn't, um, to the point where it was attempting enough to just make the whole thing computer generated, like um, you know the J.J. Star Trek movies are ninety nine percent CGI. Yeah, and I think more people should learn from that example of movies like First Contact and Jurassic Park. These are movies that are based heavily on practical effects, but they use the CGI very judiciously. But when they do. It's very realistic, and it holds up. If you watch Star Trek First Contact today, you can't really tell that you're looking at CGI. It looks real. And they clearly spent a lot of their budget on it, and that's the way it should be because all that was limited because most of the action is taking place in the corridors of the ship. Corridors of the ship, and then uh, Montana. Yeah, yes. So outdoor location shots and stuff like that. But really... Again, this movie is really great just because it's the best Star Trek action movie that you're going to get, and it didn't sell itself out like J.J.'s movies have, which we will talk about. But this is this is an action movie that is a Star Trek action movie, not an action movie with Star Trek pasted on top of it cheaply. And that's why I like it. I like it for all of the foregoing reasons, and I also like it for the additional, I guess, last point here is that it ties up the... Um, the original introduction to the Borg 
that episode of Next Generation, I think it's from the first or second season, where the... Yep, second season. Yeah, the insect things have invaded Starfleet, and they're controlling everybody, and they're eating the mealworms and Oh, everything. yeah, yeah, that's the end of the first season. Yeah, and they, they melt... Kirk and... No, Kirk, fuck. Picard and Riker melt the guy at the end. There's, like, the big queen inside of him. But the end of the episode is, mm, they send a signal off into deep space, and no one knows where it's going. That was originally what the Borg were supposed to be. Yeah, that wasn't going to work. <laughs> no, they. I guess the, what I remember reading is they couldn't get their insectoid thing looking right, so they just made them cyborg humans or humanoids. But having the Borg Queen kind of the insect hive structure, I think, is a, it's the follow-up or the logical conclusion to the, the original Borg storyline of the bug people. Okay, so what's next for you? Oh, no, I want... Or is it my turn? It's your turn. Okay. So we're on the top three now. Yes, we're on the top three now. Okay, so the third best Star Trek movie, in my mind, Star Trek VI, Undiscovered Country. I would have to agree with that, too. Yeah. I I think it's just a really, really well-done political thriller yeah. of a Star Trek movie. Again, that doesn't sell itself out. It's not a political thriller. It's Star Trek pacing on top of it. It's a Star Trek political thriller movie. And it's kind of ripped from the headlines, and we've talked about this before. It's pretty obvious. The movie was made, the Soviet Union was collapsing, and this is a movie all about the peace process between the Klingons and the Federation after their version of Chernobyl. And I think that's something that really works well with the movie because people could relate to it instantly. At least I did, because this is stuff I was learning about in school, I, I saw the movie many years later, but still, we were learning about this at the time. That I was saying, oh, yeah, that's like that. And then I found out, yeah, they based the story off of that. It's great. What would you what would you say the Chernobyl event is for people who haven't seen the movie? Just because people might know what Chernobyl is, but they might not know what the... Yeah, so like the Klingons in the movie, they're overmining their, one of their energy production facilities, their, their best one, Praxis, and because they didn't pay attention to like, you know, the safety and all that stuff at the, when they're mining, uh, the planet blows up and ruins their energy production. So basically... Their empire is going to be kaput in 50 years because they can't keep up their military expenditures because they can't produce the energy anymore. Right, and that's it's also sort of implied to be a little bit of an endemic problem that not only do they have the the energy acquisition issues, but that the Klingon Empire overall is having some you know Soviet overreach type problems that it they may have put the cart before the horse. So things are starting to... There's not being able to hold the Empire together in the monolithic form anymore. Yeah, and I thought this was a really... It's a really great position to have to put Kirk and the crew in, especially since so much of the original series they spent fighting the Klingons. It's it's a really great position to have to put Kirk and the original crew in because they spent so much time in the original series fighting the Klingons and absolutely hating them. And Klingons were portrayed in the original series as, like, the big bad. They were the evil people. They were just bad. They were always the enemy. Sometimes you got the Romulans. They weren't explored. But the Klingons were the main enemy. And so I think making the original crew kind of face their own bigotry and realize that, oh, yeah, even though the Federation is so great and we don't have any war, famine, or poverty, that kind of stuff, we still got problems. 
and we still have to overcome our own racism and stuff against the Klingons. I think there's a great scene in the movie where they're having dinner aboard the Enterprise, and uh, I think Chekhov says, you know, oh, everybody should get human rights. And the Klingon people are like, you know, what did you, you know, did you just hear yourself? You said human rights. You know, we're not human. So <laughs> and it's like they didn't even know how bigoted they were. And like Kirk says in the movie, you know, the chancellor, the Klingon chancellor had to die before Kirk realized how much of a problem he had because he hated Klingons, not just because he'd spent his whole career fighting against them, but they killed his son. Right, I think Kirk has maybe a better reason to hate Klingons than most people. But it's interesting that you say that, um, or Kirk says that he's spent a lot of his career kind of in an antagonistic relationship with them because the real quote-unquote villain of the movie turns out to be, spoilers, a bunch of uh, Starfleet admirals and higher-ups who just can't let go of the crack pipe of power. Yeah. Because for the whole... Klingon Empire Federation Cold War conflict, they've kind of been the guys in charge because it's a military conflict, so naturally you want to listen to your admirals. You want to listen to your military people. And now that the detente's happening, the peace is happening, the Klingon Empire is no longer the threat it was, well, shit. Now what do you do? Because the president's not really listening to you anymore, is he? Right, and the Klingons, like Chang, are so willing to ironically cooperate with the Federation people in sabotaging the peace process because, you know, they're so afraid, too, of a world where we don't have a perpetual war to fight. We're not on a constant war footing. Right. The the sworn enemies are working together, excuse me, to, you know, kill their leaders and make sure the peace process doesn't happen so they can keep being sworn enemies because I guess that's all I know. Yeah. It's definitely uh it's it's definitely a a good movie in that it subverts your expectations about conspiracy and just in general what did the crew of the Enterprise spend all these years in movies and and all these episodes of television what were they really fighting for right it, this this movie's great because it kind of calls into question everything that we thought we knew about the Enterprise crew and the Federation and what the role of Star Trek was. Like, what were they supposed to do? This movie makes them think, makes not just us think about that, but makes the characters consider it too. I mean, Spock, right? Spock's the only one who really believes in a peace process. The rest of them just believe, you know, oh God, this is like a fool's errand and it's gonna, we're gonna fuck this up somehow. And I mean, they, it does get fucked up, but not in the way they, they expect. And then also, you know, just the characters in this movie are, are great. I really like General Chang, Christopher Plummer as Chang. He's the, the Shakespeare quoting Klingon. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, have you read it in the original Klingon? Yeah. No, it was written in English, you dumb fuck. Right, and, and then Kirk makes the quip about Hitler. Yeah. Everybody's favorite subject. Yeah, and... There's a lot of cool... I mean, the special effects are great in this movie. I, I like them a lot. Um, the music is good, which is... It's very different music from typical Star Trek, which is more um, like an expansive, adventurous, swashbuckling-type music, whereas this is kind of really dark and moody because reflecting the material in this film is dark and moody. You know, there's a lot of... There's political assassinations and... 
Kirk and McCoy get exiled to a prison planet where they're basically supposed to freeze to death. You're supposed to mine dilithium and be good at it. Right. And then they'll be treated well. Yep, repente, then's the rules. Yep. But there's also the good scene where um, Dr. McCoy and Spock work together. Oh, to do surgery on the torpedo. Instead of usually, you know, not getting along too well or just, you know, making quips at each other's expense, they do a fun thing together. They perform surgery on a torpedo to find General Chang's cloaked ship and blow him up. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's it's a good... uh, All the characters are really strong in this movie. I think that's something to be said in favor of it versus the movies that have maybe been ranked lower or the movies that will be on the bad side. So all the characters have something to do, and it's all in fitting with them, and everybody has an arc. And we get to see you know, people, like at the, I guess, the completion of their arc, like Captain Sulu. Yeah, that that was pretty cool. You get to see him as the captain of the Excelsior throughout the movie, and just that he's he's gone from being the helmsman on the Enterprise for like 20-plus years or something, rising up the ranks, and now he's the captain of his own starship. Which is good for him. Yeah. And he's got his own shit to do, which is nice. But, again, he comes in to help out at the end. He's an integral part of it, so I'll reiterate myself. Everybody has something to do. There's no character who's just there, kind of standing in the background, saying, you know, hey, there's no red shirt guy. There's no, if you've seen uh, Galaxy Quest, there's no Guy Fleegman. There's no extra. Nobody's just standing there. And the one thing I really like about this movie, most of all, is that it gives a really good send-off to the crew. A great ending. The Peter Pan thing? Right. Great monologue in the end, and then all their signatures are on the screen. It's just really well done, and they could have made it really big and bombastic or something, and they, they kept it very subtle and classy, which is what most of the people in the original series crew uh, are. Mm-hmm. That's what I would describe them as, classy. Um, Shatner, I don't know. <laughs> He's cool. I think that Shatner is just a nice guy who enjoys doing what he does. Yeah. So he and comes of, off like a ham. Yeah, of course, Generations ruined that send-off, but that's why I like the movie. So let's move on to our second best one. Okay, the second best for me is The Wrath of Khan. Okay, so obviously then your best one is Voyage Home, right? Yep. See, for me, it's the I just have them switched around. Yeah, I, I would only rate... I like the Wrath of Khan a lot. Well, I guess we'll talk about the Wrath of Khan and not so much the Voyage Home at this particular point. I like the Wrath of Khan. I like that Spock dies, not because, you know, Spock dies, but I like it because Kirk finally learns that there are consequences to... Space travel, because usually he just loses red shirt ensigns that you can replace at a starbase. You can get some more. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, I like that aspect of it. I like that Khan... Well, number one, I like that Khan isn't defeated by being beaten with like a little plastic pipe this time. <laughs> that's cool. I like that Khan actually uses his superior genetically engineered intellect to you know do something. He doesn't outsmart Kirk for the purpose of, you know... I'm going to sneak onto a ship and beat you up. He actually legitimately outsmarts him using a crappy ship. The Reliant is not the Enterprise's equal. 
But Khan gains the upper hand because he thinks through things. He's like, hmm, okay, well, I can probably do this, and then that'll, that'll ruin them, that'll fuck them up. And it works for him. So I think there's a, Khan's a great villain. I guess my, uh, I don't really have any quibbles with the movie, I just like watching The Voyage Home more. Yeah, I think that's the same reason I have them switched around. I think they're both as close to perfect movie that you can get for a viewing experience, and they're both good science fiction, I think, in their own ways. It's just I enjoy watching Wrath of Khan more than I enjoy watching Voyage Home. Yeah, I have to say that, though, my favorite special effect is in uh, the Wrath of Khan, the big giant Chekhov's ear they made. Oh, yeah, yeah. For the model shot. The eel. Yeah, to have the eel crawl out of for the stop motion, they made like a huge, I think like a foot and a half or something, gigantic (laughs) plaster ear to do that with. Oh, that's pretty impressive. I like that. Yeah, and it... uh, you can tell it, it's it's a model when it when they do the zoom in and the the eel comes out, but it, it doesn't look that fake. And you if you suspend your disbelief like you should in every movie that you see, then it's fine. And I've and besides that, all the special effects in that movie hold up, in my opinion. Yeah, especially the uh, the Genesis uh, video that they watch, which is actually the first uh, CGI in a movie. Ever. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I guess it's the first computer-generated uh, movie sequence. Oh, so that was the CGI sequence, not like a, a blue screen pacing something over something else. It was like actually made from scratch. Right. Well, that's pretty good for that, then. Yeah. I mean, you know, naturally I'm sure when J.J. Abrams' Star Trek covers eventually the Genesis device in some form, because we know he'll get there. It's going to be very, very different. There's going to be a hologram, I'll bet. It's going to be flashy. Yeah, and JJ's version will probably be like a club drug at the academy that everybody's taking. Genesis. And it's like Genesis and stuff. And, you know, it's turning cadets into like crazy zombies or something. And It's turning cadets into killing machines run by the Klingon Empire. Right. So Kirk has to go back to the academy and pose as a cadet. Yep. 21 Jump Street meets Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, that's right. See, I'd watch that. That would be interesting. But that's not Star Trek. 21 Space Doc Ave. And yeah, exactly. That could work. I'd watch that, but again... I wouldn't. Not. I would definitely watch that, but not. it's not Star Trek, though. It's just something to watch to laugh at. And that, yeah, that's and that's why I like The Voyage Home. Yeah. Because it's, it's a really good way to do... Again, they use... They combine sci-fi with other genres successfully. They don't paste it on top of it cheesily. You know, it's... Voyage Home is a Star Trek comedy. And yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. There are stakes in the movie beyond just pure comedy, but seeing the crew interact with 1986 San Franciscans and the whole world around them, which they don't understand, it's the typical fish-out-of-water movie, but they do it in a very Star Trek way, which makes it really cool and enjoyable. And the box office and a lot of viewers agree with that because... You know, if, even if you talk to people who hate Star Trek and they don't know anything about Star Trek, they still remember, oh, the one with the whales. Right. Which I hate when people say that, but still, that just says something about the impact of that movie because, oh, the one with the whales, people actually know what it is. They remember seeing it and they remember, oh, it was a good movie. And then they don't really remember that it was Star Trek. I, I really like the way that the Voyage Home handles. Well, I, my favorite thing is uh, they never told that police officer. 
when uh, Chekhov and Uhu were asking about the Alameda Naval Base. He oh, they didn't tell him they were filming a movie? He didn't know he was being filmed. <laughs> and I don't think he recognized Walter Koenig. So it was just like, there's a weird Russian guy asking him about the nuclear vessel. So his expression of like, like, what the fuck are you doing is completely genuine. I like that. I like the transparent aluminum thing. Dr. Yeah. Nichols. Right. Scotty with the computer. I mean, you're right. It's a it's a comedy movie with Star Trek woven into it. It's an Apple computer. A, yeah, it's an Apple too. I think. Yep. Is that a keyboard? No, fuck, it's a Lisa. I'm sorry. Yeah, a keyboard. Too. How quaint. But that's it's funny, though. And it's just... I think that it's perfect in that it's people who have a passing familiarity with the era. Like, everybody in Star Trek, I guess, is educated to a certain point about what, to them, is fairly ancient history. It's like... Uh, Edwardian England to us as far as the time distance almost. But to them, you know, if you if you take somebody now who has an understanding of like, let's say you know a lot about the Roman Empire and we sent you back in time, I think I can say confidently, I only know one person really who would be able to survive in that point in time. No matter how much you know about it, you're still going to be a fish out of water. You're still going to fuck something up. You're still going to die. So it's, it's really great to watch the Star Trek cast from the 20, what, 23rd century yeah. at that point come walk around and, and try and navigate the world. They kind of know what's going on, but not really. I mean, they all speak English, and they all kind of have the same basic, you know, customs and everything, but weird shit like, hmm, money, what's money? We got to get in a bus? Bus fare, what's bus fare? Yeah. And the, <laughs> there are whales in, a, like, a little whale museum. Like, what's this about? Well, you, the, you can't swim with the whales? Oh, I didn't know. The the best comedy part in the movie where Spock uh, knocks out the guy on the bus. Yep, one of yeah. my, my favorite Star Trek moment where Spock <laughs> Vulcan pinches the punk on the bus and shuts his radio off. I guess I, I also like um, the hospital scene. Yeah, the, that was a, that's a yeah. really just a cool chase sequence. Well, I mean, before, though, like, where Dr. McCoy's walking around, the old lady says, oh, I'm on dialysis, and he goes, like, guys, this is the fucking Dark Ages. Like, <laughs> yeah. here, have two pills, and I'll, that'll fix everything that's wrong with you. He's just so pissed off yeah. about the state of medicine. <laughs> and he, he goes in there, and the doctor's like, what are you doing? You know, we have to evacuate the pressure. And he's like, that's a fucking retarded plan. Like, why would you do that? Yeah, put away your butcher knives <laughs> and let me fix this man. <laughs> yeah. It's I, it's just a great movie, and I have a good time watching it every time I watch it. So to me, that is the best Star Trek movie. Yeah, I can't argue with that. They're both they're both masterpieces. It's just it comes down to who enjoys what more, and I guess we're just opposite on that. Which I can accept that. I may not be so willing to accept uh, differences we have on the worst movies. Well, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, although the worst movies are. Certainly terrible, cataclysmic by the time you get down to the bottom. I don't think we're going to have any trouble coming up with a, a long list of uh, shortcomings. Yeah, if I have to predict anything, I, I think we're going to agree for what the worst one is. Yes, I, I think so as well. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, for those of you who are now just titillated beyond imagination to know what Grant and I think are the, the worst Star Trek movies after hearing our great discussion of what the, the best or most entertaining ones are today, uh, please do tune in next week. Uh, next Sunday, we'll have this up. And for now, uh, enjoy your Easter, and we will see you next week.